The Hardy Cross Dillard Chair was established in 1975 by the law school class of 1969 with the assistance of an anonymous donor. Remarkably, Margot is only the second holder of following Peter Lowe, who I'm, I'm glad to see is, uh, is here with us today. Margot received her undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from the University of Wisconsin and began her career in product development at Procter & Gamble and then became a senior research analyst at Coca-Cola. Her time as an engineer, which included the award of a patent, led to an interest in the law of intellectual property and ultimately to law school. She received a JD from Emory and practiced patent law before returning to Emory to teach. She joined our faculty in 2006. Margot's academic work combines rigorous and influential scholarship with practical service to governments and NGOs that have made her a truly global presence in intellectual property law. She edited, along with Ruth Akedeji, the recent book, Patent Law in Global Perspective, and wrote a chapter for the book on patent subject matter. Margot is also the author, along with Artie Rye, of a report on how the Nagoya Protocol to the Convention on Biological Diversity applies to synthetic biology. While this may seem to be, and is, a highly technical subject, at bottom is an issue of great legal, medical, and ethical significance. Many developing countries are home to plants and microorganisms that may be bioactive in useful ways. Companies and research institutes in developed countries have the research and development capacity to create pharmaceutical and other products using these organisms. But once the genetic material is extracted, the bioactive features can often be synthesized without further access to the original organism. The result is a classic bilateral monopoly problem. But should the parties fail to reach agreement, the foregone uh, consumer surplus may consist not only of wealth, but of longer and healthier lives. International IP law can have a substantial impact on whether that surplus can be captured and how it will be divided between developed and developing countries. Margot and her co-author carefully set out the problems and systematically uh, assess how the Nagoya Protocol and other international conventions and treaties may shape the synth synthetic biology industry. Because of her expertise in international patent law, Margot was invited to attend as an observer a 2014 meeting of the World Intellectual Property Organization's Intergovernmental Committee on Genetic Resources, Traditional Knowledge, and Folklore. At that meeting, Mozambique's ambassador to the UN asked Margot to advise the country in the talks. She quickly became one of the leading figures in the negotiations on behalf of the Africa Group of Developing Countries and has drafted proposals on the group's behalf to meet its goal of extending intellectual property protections to the fruits of traditional medical, artistic, and other knowledge contained within developing countries. As is clear from this discussion, Margot has an ongoing scholarly interest in the intersection of morality and intellectual property. In 2003, she published a thought-provoking article on the morality of U.S. patent policy, uh, patent policy excuse me, as applied to biotechnology. 
The U.S. has what she calls a patent first, ask questions later approach in which ethical questions are not raised during the patent process but saved for later. But Margot pointed out that this system undercuts Congress's decision not to fund research on morally controversial topics such as human cloning. The possibility of patent protection and the attendant monopoly profit is itself a form of research funding, an important and compelling insight. More recently, Margot published The Wheat and the GM Tares, Lessons for Patent Litigation from the Parables of Christ, a meditation on several current patent controversies drawing on the New Testament's agricultural parables. One arresting example uses the parable of the enemy who sowed tares or weeds among a farmer's wheat to reflect on the moral questions underlying Monsanto's litigation against unintended infringers of its genetically modified plants. Today's talk will examine the moral dimensions of patentable subject matter, also drawing on biblical sources. As with all of Margot's work, it will combine deep scientific understanding, comprehensive knowledge of the patent system, and acute sensitivity to human welfare. Please join me in welcoming the Hardy Cross Dillard Professor of Law, Margot Bagley. Thank you so much, Paul, for that generous introduction. And thanks so much to all of you for being here this afternoon. I believe it's customary for one's spouse to attend one's chair lecture, and my husband had hoped to be here today, but in an unusual coincidence, our son is right now presenting a research poster at an NSF symposium in DC, so he's there, but I am very delighted to have my mother, Marjorie Cooper, here with me. She has been an inspiration to me all my life, and my being here is certainly due to her in large part. As Paul mentioned, Hardy Cross Dillard was a former dean of this law school and a former judge on the International Court of Justice. The Dillard Chair, Dillard Scholarships, Dillard Fellows all testify to his impact on the very fabric of this great law school. It has been a pleasure, as Paul mentioned, to listen to former students and staff talk about at alumni board events um, the stories of the amazing man that he was and the difference that he made to their time at the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm deeply honored to be the holder of the chair established in his name. A few weeks ago, in her chair lecture, Professor Ferzan lamented the fact that I had usurped her position as a final chair lecturer under Paul's deanship. I empathize with her chagrin, but I do appreciate the opportunity to give the final Mahoney-era chair lecture. When I joined the UVA Law School faculty 10 years ago, the first committee that I was asked to serve on was the Dean Search Committee. This was a daunting task, made significantly easier by the tradition of excellent deans arising from the ranks of the faculty and the candidacy and qualifications of Paul Mahoney. In 2006, our committee could not have foreseen the dramatic upheaval that would take place in the economy and in legal education. Yet I do not believe that we could have found a dean better able to lead this school through those turbulent times than Paul. 
He has had to bring all of his considerable talents to bear on an amazing array of challenges, and he has succeeded marvelously. I believe we all appreciate his financial acumen and political savvy in protecting the law school from the vagaries of legislative and central administrative incursions. And the fact that this law school is such an operationally functional place is also a testament to his structuring of administrative functions and hiring and retention of superb administrators. And of course, his strategic hiring of stellar new faculty and support of the scholarly enterprise are clearly evident. Paul has admirably managed to introduce innovative initiatives to strengthen and advance the law school while preserving key traditions and strengths that continue to make it one of the premier institutions in legal education today. I have a special appreciation for Paul's ability to see that aspects of my work, while unconventional, could be of benefit to the law school and its students. And I'm so pleased to be able in this forum to say thank you for your support. And now to my talk. Thou shalt not steal the morality of limits on pharmaceutical patents. And thanks also to my wonderful research assistant, Joe Babbitts, who helped me with my Prezi. So, in Europe, a woman was near death from a rare form of cancer. There was one drug that her doctors thought might save her. It was a type of radium that a druggist in the same town had recently discovered. The drug was expensive to make, but the druggist was charging $4,000, which was 10 times the cost of manufacture. The sick woman's husband, Heinz, went to everyone he knew to borrow money, but he could only get together about $2,000, half of what it cost. He asked the druggist to sell it to him for cheaper or let him pay later, but the druggist said, no, I discovered the drug and I'm going to make money from it. So having tried every legal means, Heinz gets desperate and considers breaking into the man's store to steal the drug for his wife. Should Heinz steal the drug? Lawrence Kohlberg used the way study participants responded to this and other stories to assess their stage of moral development. The moral dilemma arises because allowing someone to die when you could save their life is morally wrong. But stealing is also morally wrong. And for Heinz to take the drug without permission would be considered stealing, even if it were ultimately deemed to be excusable. On Kohlberg's scale, the more a person felt bound by the dictates of law, the less sophisticated his or her moral development. The more he considered and valued the rights and attitudes of all parties involved, the more advanced his moral thinking was deemed to be. The highest level of morality would recognize universal ethical principles, human rights that might conflict with and trump a society's statutory laws. But is it possible for Heinz taking of the drug without permission to not be viewed as theft at all? Might the druggist instead be the thief if he tried to keep the drug from Heinz? If so, what theory would explain such a conclusion? Those are the questions that I would like to explore brief briefly with you today. In preparing for this lecture, I stopped to reflect on the nature of the questions that I find most interesting in patent law and that I've chosen to study. I identified three strands, or primary strands at least, a doctrinal strand that focuses on key patentability requirements such as subject matter and novelty, a focus on the challenges of new technologies, particularly in the biological sciences, 
and a strand focused on how biblical analogies can be used to inform patent policy discussions and restructure debates to ultimately improve the patent system. But running through all of these strands and through my work with the government of Mozambique at the World Intellectual Property Organization um, negotiations has been a concern for and a desire to illuminate ways in which patents, while having many positive benefits, may facilitate injustice for varying populations. This justice theme has been most evident in my work in relation to biblical analogies. I'm not the first scholar to apply biblical analogies to legal questions, and I'm not a theologian. But this exploration has allowed me to combine two important areas of my life, my faith and my deep interest in patent law and policy. For example, as Paul mentioned in the wheat and the GMO tears, I explored parallels between three of Christ's agrarian parables and plant patent litigation between organic seed growers and Monsanto concerning GMO crop contamination. And in Grant Me Justice Against My Adversary, I compared Christ's parable of the window conti widow continually seeking justice from the unrighteous judge in Luke 18 to the organic seed grower plaintiffs in their quest to be free from the threat of patent infringement litigation. But self-replicating inventions are not the only area of patent law where I believe we can learn from biblical approaches to ownership of life-saving products. And so, when my earlier work on biblical approaches led to an invitation to speak at the University of Cambridge last fall at a conference on issues in patenting life considered through various perspectives on intellectual property and religious thought, I also focused on the application of a biblical analogy to a different area of patent law, pharmaceutical patenting, my topic for today. Now, patents and pharmaceuticals seem to go hand in hand. Through the patent mechanism, the government grants to an inventor the right to exclude others from practicing the invention, making, using, selling, offering to sell, importing it, for a term of years, about 20 years from the filing date. Patent rights are territorial, so inventors must apply in each country or region for protection. And I have here examples of um, a U.S. patent, a Japanese patent, and a European patent application all relating to the same invention. So these patents are only valid in the particular country in which they are granted. Each country has its own patent law, and so an inventor may get a patent in one country and not in another. However, the 1995 World Trade Organization Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property, also known as TRIPS, ultimately requires all countries to eventually provide patent protection on pharmaceutical products. And many of the countries that are party to the WTO are very poor. The right to exclude granted by a patent has widely been considered essential to pharmaceutical investment and development, so much so that even among scholars who are critical of the clarity, scope, and potential for abuse of patents overall, agree that patents on, develop, on pharmaceutical products are necessary to incentivize the exorbitant cost of drug development, which, according to one widely cited Tufts study, is about $2.5 billion, or according to critics, closer to $200 million. Moreover, the deadweight losses that patents um, create also are considered justified for pharmaceuticals, as companies need to price above marginal cost to recoup their significant fixed development expenses. However, drug prices are soaring in rich and poor countries, 
Yet efforts by governments to reduce costs through mechanisms such as compulsory licenses routinely meet with censure at the hubris of even considering harm to the goose that lays the golden eggs of new medical breakthroughs, with such efforts often being labeled as theft. Now, the use of theft framing in intellectual property is not new. Um, you may not have seen this particular YouTube takedown notice, but you get the general idea. Um, trade secret misappropriation is often characterized as theft. In copyright and trademark, there are criminal penalties available for counterfeiting. There is a link uh, with notions of theft and IP. The use of theft rhetoric in patent law also is not new. But in this area, it can have a particularly pernicious effect. It tends to constrain policy choices and government actions with the potential to overly extend the boundaries of the patent grant beyond the social bargain. The notion that stealing is wrong, that it is immoral even, derives at least in part from the Judeo-Christian roots of the Ten Commandments and their injunction against stealing. One of the cases that I enjoy teaching in my IP survey class is Upright Music versus Warner Brothers, where the defendant is accused of sampling a small portion from one of the plaintiff's recordings. When a judge begins his decision with the line, thou shalt not steal, it is a pretty good bet that things are not going to turn out well for the defendant. The judge stated, thou shalt not steal has been an admonition followed since the dawn of civilization. Unfortunately, in the modern world of business, this admonition is not always followed. The conduct of the defendants herein, however, violates not only the Seventh Commandment, but also the copyright laws of this country. There are a surprising number of theft of property cases dealing with both tangible and intangible property that mention the Seventh Commandment, or the Eighth Commandment, depending upon which Bible you are using. And while many of these cases are old, some of them are relatively new. And while, of course, the courts are not explicitly relying on the commandment as a basis for their decision, invoking the commandment is doing some work. It is making a link between the moral law and theft. Here's another interesting one, fairly recent, from 2010. The ancient admonition, thou shalt not steal, expresses a value that is basic to and underlies the law of property. One cannot freely appropriate to him or herself what has been produced by the labor, efforts, or capital of another. While the plaintiff did not formally allege that the defendants contravened the Seventh Commandment, the plaintiff has accused the defendants of violating nearly every modern derivation of the, uh, of the biblical edict. Note that the judge is quite explicitly, again, classifying infringement, because uh, this was also an infringement case, with this moral wrong. I do not believe that these links, or at least not all of them, are being unconsciously made. I think that there is an intent to make a link between the moral law and IP infringement, especially in light of the increasing efforts to criminalize IP infringement both domestically and internationally through free trade agreements. But what I actually find a bit more worrying are the non-negligible number of commentators calling a certain kind of activity compulsory licensing of a drug patent, theft. Compulsory licenses are when the government allows a third party to make a patented product without the permission of the patent holder. 
However, the third party does have to compensate the patent holder, providing some sort of remuneration. Um, under the main treaty in this area, it's adequate remuneration. Some free trade, re um, free trade agreements require reasonable and entire uh, compensation. Um, so they do have to provide something. However, the patent owner cannot stop the third party from producing the particular product. Compulsory licenses are explicitly allowed under international law um, with the WTO TRIPS agreement outlining conditions that countries must follow when they are going to issue these compulsory licenses. The rhetoric of theft in relation to compulsory licenses also has moral overtones and seems, in my view at least, uniquely designed to counter what might otherwise appear to be a moral obligation to save life when it will not harm you to do so. Consider the following examples. A few years ago, I was troubled when I read a Wall Street Journal op-ed castigating the Thai government's issuance of compulsory licenses on two HIV AIDS drug and a heart disease drug, Plavix. According to Boston University School of Law Dean Emeritus Ronald Cass, Thailand had engaged in theft. He states, the EU's trade commissioner recently joined the U.S. in protesting Thailand's effective theft of pharmaceutical companies' intellectual property. There's a growing appreciation that trampling patents to allow a middle-income nation to cut its spending on drugs seriously threatens the world's system of protections for innovation. What really disturbed me about the op-ed was the characterization of Thailand as ripping off drug companies and harming innovation when it was in fact in compliance with its international obligations and the compulsory license was limited for use in the Thai public health system. Also, as Jill Johnston and James Love noted, in 2006, Thailand had an average per capita income of 819 per day. For the bottom 80% of the income distribution, the average was 522 per day. To illustrate the Thai concerns regarding afford affordability of products, it's useful to note that the pre-compulsory licensing price for the heart disease drug Plavix was $2 per day, or nearly 40% of the average income of the bottom 80% of the population. More recently, other commentators have used the same theft language to describe compulsory licenses, including the CEO of Bayer characterizing a different compulsory license as essentially theft. The compulsory license had been granted by the Indian government on a cancer drug that Bayer had priced so high in India that it was available to only 2% of the Indian patients who needed it. Moreover, this rhetoric is not going away. Just last week, I was speaking with the U.S. government official about a different topic, misappropriation of genetic resources in developing countries. This official then, out of the blue, began to complain quite vehemently about Indian generics stealing U.S. companies' intellectual property. I was somewhat taken aback, but I told the official I could not agree with that characterization of the Indian generic companies as thieves because patent rights are territorial and sovereign nations can limit the scope of the grant as they see fit, especially they, uh, when they are in compliance with treaties to which they have acceded. When using this theft rhetoric or framing, commentators are generally sending two messages, as we can see in these slides with a couple of additional examples, where they talk about theft and discouraging companies from developing the next generation of medicines. That was a commentator in South Africa. Uh, and here talking about India stealing our stuff, uh, pharmaceuticals. The greatest threat to innovation globally now comes from India's policies. It is stated, the two messages that we see are 
that compulsory licenses are morally wrong and that compulsory licenses will harm innovation and we will not get the new drugs we need. They thus appeal both to moral outrage and to understandable self-interest. I would like to take a closer look at each of these messages in turn. First, if compulsory licenses are morally wrong because it is morally wrong to steal, and the moral wrongness of theft derives in some measure from the Judeo-Christian moral law, then I think it might be instructive to take a closer look at the meaning of theft under that moral law. Accusing someone of stealing is a serious matter. In the Bible, theft is a sin. It's a violation of one of the commands that are sacred in Judeo-Christian traditions. But the Ten Commandments are not just a bunch of thou shalt nots. I really like the way that Jesus explained it when, asked by an expert in the law, which was the greatest commandment, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. I believe that what Jesus was explaining is that the Ten Commandments are about love. Love for God, the first four, and love for your neighbor, the last six. So we can show love to God by not putting other gods before him, or bowing down to idols, or taking his name in vain and choosing to spend his Sabbath with him. In terms of our love for or duty to our neighbor, well, dishonoring our parents is not loving, right, Mom? Um, neither is murder, nor cheating on our spouses, nor is lying on our neighbor, nor coveting what our neighbor has. And stealing is definitely not loving. Perhaps because of that love orientation, there are in the Bible explicit instructions regarding a variety of actions that would otherwise be considered stealing. And some of those actions embodied in the Jewish concept of paya provide an interesting and useful analogy that can, I believe, inform the way we think about limits on pharmaceutical patents. The descriptions of paya can be found in Leviticus 19 and 23 and in Deuteronomy 24. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In fact, these examples of loving your neighbor are so important that not only are the poor not stealing or even trespassing, the landowner is enjoined from harvesting to the edges or going back to get the forgotten sheep or making a second sweep to pick up missed grapes. What is left does not belong to them and it will not harm them for the poor to have it. It seems God wanted people to trust him, not wealth, to supply their needs. Now, to be very clear, uh, we do not live in a theocracy, and I am in no way arguing that the Ten Commandments, or even some of them, are the basis or foundation of US law. Nor am I suggesting that we adopt Levitical approaches to dealing with current day legal issues, rather. This talk is an invitation to consider another perspective on the meaning of theft drawn from a text widely considered as sacred. And it is an argument that current uses of theft rhetoric and patent law to the extent that they aim to resonate with Judeo-Christian notions of morality are both incomplete and dangerous.
incomplete because they do not take account of the full definition of theft in that moral context, a definition which includes the possibility of the property owner stealing from the poor. And dangerous because when governments are threatened with economic sanctions for issuing compulsory licenses based on that theft framing, they may be reluctant to issue such licenses, and some people may die as a result of not getting the medicines they should have received. It is perhaps worthwhile to remember that inventors do not have a natural right to a patent. Governments grant patents to meet utilitarian societal goals, and governments decide the subject matter, scope, and duration of patents. In the U.S., it's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the Constitution, which authorizes but does not mandate Congress to promote the progress of science and the useful arts by granting or securing to authors and inventors for limited times the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Thus, the Supreme Court's conclusion in eBay versus Merck Exchange that having a right to exclude does not mean the remedy for the violation of that right is an injunction is not theft, even though it may result in de facto compulsory licenses. Moreover, that same court's decision in Association of Molecular Pathologists versus Myriad that isolated genomic DNA is not patent eligible, is not patent eligible, is also not theft, even though it effectively invalidated thousands of patent claims. Moreover, the protection of pharmaceutical products by patent is a relatively recent phenomena, even in many highly developed countries. Uh, for example, Germany did not introduce pharmaceutical patents until 1968, Italy 1978, Canada 1987, and many developing countries not until 2005 as a result of having to comply with the TRIPS agreement. As Thomas Jefferson so eloquently stated, stable ownership is the gift of social law and is given late in the progress of society. It would be curious then if an idea, the fugitive fermentation of an individual brain could of natural right be claimed in exclusive and stable property. If nature's made any one thing less susceptible than all others of exclusive property, it's the action of the thinking power called an idea. Inventions then cannot in nature be a subject of property. Society may give an encouragement to men, I'm sorry, society may give an exclusive right to the profits arising from them as an encouragement to men to pursue ideas which may produce utility, but this may or may not be done according to the will and convenience of the society without claim or complaint from anybody. Because the government creates the, right, the patent right and its terms, the government can impose appropriate limitations on that right without such limitations being theft. And making sure that the poor have access to the drugs that they need to live in a way that does not harm the patent holder should be viewed, I believe, as part of the social bargain inherent in the patent system and should be deemed morally right, not morally wrong. In terms of the second message, that compulsory licenses will harm innovation resulting in our not getting the drugs that we need, and there's a subsidiary argument that the poor would not get the drugs if we didn't have patents because they wouldn't have been developed, I have two points. One, we are already not getting many of the drugs we need, and two, the ones we get, we often cannot afford. This is because drug companies are incentivized, but not in the ways one might think. 
More than one billion people are affected by neglected tropical diseases such as malaria and tuberculosis each year. Ten million people die from these diseases annually. Millions more are so incapacitated they cannot, that they cannot work or care for themselves or their children. These diseases predominantly affect the poorest people in least developed countries. As this chart from the European Patent Office shows, however, drug research and development is disproportionately focused on chronic, non-communicable diseases, uh, such as cancers, many of which have been made chronic, diabetes, etc. even though many more disability-adjusted life years are lost for infectious diseases. So we as a global community are already not getting the best mix of drugs that we need. It's helpful, I think, to consider the profitability and decisional inputs of the pharmaceutical industry. Big Pharma has long been one of the top five, often top two, most profitable industries in the world. And here, the health technology includes pharmaceuticals. The numbers are pretty astounding. Um, these numbers from Forbes show pharmaceuticals and banks um, pretty much tied for highest average profit margins of the five main industrial sectors with highest profits um, go uh, to a pharmaceutical company being 42%, the lowest around 10%. Um, as one of my students in a paper wrote, for nearly three decades, the pharmaceutical industry has been at or near the top of Fortune magazine's measures of profitability. In the year 2000, Merck had profits of 6.8 billion. This was more than the profits of all the four, five, Fortune 500 companies in the airline, entertainment, food production, metals, and hotel casino resource industries combined that year. In 2006 alone, Pfizer made 19.6 billion in profit. Only recently was the pharmaceutical industry surpassed by the petroleum industry as the most profitable worldwide. And in looking at, I don't have a separate slide on it, but the expenditures for R&D uh, versus sales and marketing, about half is spent on R&D as is spent on sales and marketing. So the ability, sorry, I'm not quite ready for that one. The ability to obtain such profits are, not surprisingly, what is driving pharmaceutical drug development decisions. These are companies. Their goal is to maximize shareholder value. They are not charitable institutions, and we shouldn't expect them to be. Now, it's true, as I noted earlier, that the cost of bringing a drug to market is significant. But even at the high number, companies are selling drugs so far above marginal costs that the costs of drug development are more than made up for. Take, for example, Aminotip, a treatment for chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, which used to be a death sentence, but which has now been turned into a chronic disease. According to an article by 100 CML experts, Aminotib was originally priced at $30,000 per year in 2001. There were around 30,000 patients in the U.S., so around $900,000 per year would recoup the cost of development in the first few years and generate significant profits after that. The drug, however, was far more successful than anticipated at prolonging life for CML patients. The 10-year survival rate increased from 20% to 80%. However, the price of Aminotib also increased over time from that original $30,000 per year to $92,000 per year in 2012, even though all of the research costs were accounted for in the original price. And the patent term was then extended for an additional two years. The high profits also reinforce the minimization of risk that comes from seeking approval for and introducing new chemical entities, which can be a very risky proposition. 
As a result, we tend to get a lot of Me Too drugs, drugs with the same mechanism of action as a prior blockbuster drug. So the drug company knows that this works, that it's successful, and they make minor changes to it, perhaps using a different form of the compound, um, separating a racemic mixture, uh, using a new dosage form, maybe a once a day tablet as opposed to having to take it three times a day, or formulating it with another compound. According to the Government Accountability Office, in 2006, 60% of new approvals were for Me Too drugs, drugs with the same mechanism of action. In 2014, 40% of new drugs approved by the FDA targeted rare diseases, for which high prices and generous profit margins are common. In 2012, such specialty drugs represented just 1% of prescriptions written nationwide, but accounted for 25% of the $263 billion spent on all prescription drugs. So looking at so many of the approvals being for rare conditions and then so many other approvals being for Me Too drugs, we arguably are still not getting enough of the kinds of drug innovations we need from the current system's skewed incentives. Moreover, companies are incentivized to develop treatments and compounds that will turn deadly diseases into chronic conditions so that you can live longer and keep taking the drug. They are not incentivized to develop cures, which is what we really would prefer to have. This is not to say that drug companies do not develop cures. Sometimes they do, but the vast majority of the products are not cures. With a cure, it's problematic for a drug company. They don't get a royalty stream, but a one-time payment, and if they price it too high, they may get significant resistance. The controversial blockbuster Solvaldi provides a timely example of this problem. Solvaldi is one of the most expensive drugs in history. It's sold for $1,000 a pill. It's a treatment and almost a cure in more than 90% of cases for hepatitis C, also called HCV, which is affected to affect um, upwards of 150 million people worldwide and 3 to 5 million people in the United States. In fact, there were more HCV deaths than HIV-AIDS deaths in the U.S. between 1999 and 2007. Gilead purchased the startup Pharmacet in order to acquire uh, Sofosbuvir, um, the active ingredient in Sovaldi, and its follow-on drug, Harvoni. Gilead purchased Pharmacet for $11 billion, uh, finished the FDA approval process, and launched the drug in late 2013, following up with the same active ingredient in a different formulation called Har Harvoni in 2014. Harvoni is oral only. Sovaldi has, uh, has to be taken intravenously with an... Uh, Gilead made $13 billion on the two drugs. Gilead made another approximately $13 billion in the first nine months of 2015, which was the second year. So $26 billion on a product they acquired with very little risk for $11 billion. The folks who arguably took most of the risk, um, the folks at Pharmacet, were pretty happy with $11 billion. A recently released congressional report details the story of how While Gilead asserted its primary concern in developing and marketing Sovaldi was to treat the largest number of HCV patients possible, in reality, Gilead's marketing, pricing, and contracting strategies were focused on maximizing revenue, 
even as the company's analysis showed a lower price would allow more patients to be treated. Significantly, when confronted with the widespread initiation of access restrictions, Gilead refused to offer substantial discounts and did not significantly modify its contracting strategy to improve patient access. The report concludes that federal health care programs have little to no policy levers at their disposal to significantly impact the prices of a single-source innovator drug. Now, it is beyond the scope of my talk today to address the situation in the U.S. where access to drugs is also becoming a very serious problem for reasons including, but not limited to, patents. But having compulsory licensing discussions in the U.S. adds a further complexity due to the fact that R&D decisions are largely based on the U.S. market. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that when Senator Bernie Sanders proposed a bill to put Savaldi under compulsory license after the Veterans Administration ran out of funding for HCV and was unable, unable to put any more patients on treatment, Gilead reduced the VA's price, and only the VA's price, to $500 a pill in response. So what does this mean for compulsory licenses in developing countries? Drug companies are not basing their R&D decisions on the possibility of generating meaningful profits in developing countries. They are basing their decisions on the needs of the U.S., Europe, and other highly developed markets. Bayer CEO Marin Deckers confirmed this when he noted, after calling the next severe compulsory license essentially theft, is this going to have a big effect on our business model? No, because we did not develop this product for the Indian market. Let's be honest. We developed this product for Western patients who can afford this product, quite honestly. When decisions are made about where to invest R&D dollars, they're made based, they are made based on wealthy markets. Whatever drug companies earn in poor countries is largely gravy. In both the Thai and Indian compulsory licensing examples, the drugs were going to poor people who would not be able to buy the drug at the price the originator pharmaceutical company was charging. These were not lost sales these sales would never have been made. It is similar to the catastrophic loss of life on the African continent due to the pricing of HIV AIDS drugs out of the reach of millions of people in the late 90s, early 2000s. As vividly described in the movie Fire in the Blood, the entire continent of Africa, of Africa counted for only 1% of originator pharmaceutical um, sales of HIV AIDS drugs. The entire continent was a rounding error. Yet the companies took a hard line and kept their prices in Africa at the same ten dollars to $15,000 per patient per year as they did in the U.S. and fought vigorously against the introduction of generic drugs while millions of lives were lost. I think it is thus, thus worth asking if the incentive to develop new drugs is not affected by developing country markets, should we allow a patent? a foreign patent, mind you, that had little or nothing to do with incentivizing research and on which the drug developer did not anticipate making any meaningful profit to restrain competition and result in lost lives? Should we watch people die when it costs us nothing or very little to let them live? Or to put it in the context of PEA, shouldn't the poor have a right to drugs when their use of the patented invention will not harm the patent holder? So to return to this, our story at the beginning of my talk, is it possible that Heinz has a right to the drug for his wife? Or to put it in a patent context, that a government has a duty to allow a third party to provide that drug via compulsory license or some other mechanism to Heinz in a way that will not harm the druggist? Sure. When we consider PEA, we should be more willing to conclude at a minimum that a developing country issuing a compulsory license is not theft. 
and should not be characterized as such. And that, in fact, the poor do have a right to free or low-cost life-saving drugs as long as providing such drugs does not unduly harm the drug, maker, the drug provider. When we use the label of theft to describe a particular set of actions and simultaneously play the innovation card, we effectively erect a barrier that limits a government's ability to appropriately utilize such actions to meet pressing societal needs. So the hard questions do not get asked. This theft framing has no correlation to the most productive innovation, nor to providing optimal ph pharmaceutical innovation. Rather, it's designed to produce optimal profit. In an area in as much crisis as public health in countries around the world, I think it is important for us to tear down that barrier and begin to ask who is stealing from whom. The patent system was never designed to be a guarantee of maximum profits. Rather, it is supposed to have a positive impact on society. As the Supreme Court has stated, the possession and assertion of patent rights are issues of great moment to the public. A patent by its very nature is affected with a public interest. As recognized by the Constitution, it is a special privilege designed to serve the public purpose of promoting the progress of science and useful arts. At the same time, a patent is an exception to the general rule against monopolies and the right to access to a free and open market. So if, to some extent, our notions of the moral wrongness of stealing derive from the Ten Commandments, we should not look at those commandments in isolation, but should consider also the contextual limitations on that concept. As Professor Robert Neuss explains, though the gleaning laws are not extensive, they provide us with significant insight into the command against theft. What the modern mind might call theft was not so defined in the Old Testament. Human need had a right of access to the basic essentials of life. For the poor to take food from another person's land was not theft, but it was wrong for the more affluent person to withhold it. When we consider the biblical analogy of Paya, it allows us to begin to reframe the discussion and ask who is stealing from whom. Are our policies out of balance such that the poor are being robbed of what they are due? These are not easy issues to address, and there are no risk-free solutions, no clear way to know exactly how to balance access and innovation at the same time. But we may be better able to get to a win-win outcome if we open our eyes to other ways of viewing competing interests and allow our legal discussions to be informed by analogies from important traditions that have in the past informed our constructions of right and wrong, of morality itself. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When we put these two phrasings of the commandment together, as Christ did, we can then view theft in relation to pharmaceutical patents in its proper light. We can seek and develop appropriate exceptions to patent rights that do not eviscerate protection, but provide the balance society needs. Perhaps then, in the pharmaceutical context at least, we will begin, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and the prophet Amos, to see justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Thank you. <laughs>